In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's not the welcome newcomers to Canada were expecting this summer. Looking for a better life instead, they found themselves sleeping on the streets of the country's biggest city. Toronto's Peter Street Shelter Intake Office was thrust into the national spotlight after June 1st. That's when the city, dealing with an already overwhelmed shelter system, started referring refugees and asylum seekers to federally run programs. But when people in need showed up to the Peter Street site, they were met with long waits, forcing them to stay on the sidewalk for weeks with no other place to go. Now, community leaders are taking matters into their own hands, helping move some of the unhoused people to GTA churches. And hours after they stepped up, the federal government announced more than $200 million in support nationally to fund interim housing for asylum seekers, with about half going to Toronto. But will this last-minute funding make a difference? And what will it take to create sustainable housing for asylum seekers in Toronto and beyond? I'm Melissa Duggan, in for Jordan Heath-Rawlings. And this is The Big Story. Sherry Aiken is an associate professor specializing in immigration and refugee law at Queen's University Faculty of Law. She's also on the board of the FCJ Refugee Centre in Toronto. Hi, Sherry. Good morning, Melissa. And good morning is right. We're talking on Tuesday morning, and there's a sense that this is really coming to a head. So how did we get to this moment? And why has the lack of housing become such an issue across the country right now, especially considering what we've been seeing at Peter Street in Toronto? Well, indeed, we are in the midst of a national housing crisis um, that affects thousands of people across the country, not just refugees and asylum seekers, right? So, I mean, that is a frame in relation to the problem you've just raised. But in terms of asylum seekers in particular, hundreds of them sleeping on the sidewalk in downtown Toronto, there's a very specific set of circumstances that led to this crisis. And it's frankly a failure on the part of all three levels of government that that need to be held accountable for it. I guess I'd, I'd start, first of all, with a very wide lens and say that globally, the numbers of people who've been forced to flee are at an all-time high. At the end of just last year, there were over 35 million refugees around the world and 5.4 million asylum seekers. Those numbers are unprecedented. So it shouldn't be surprising in light of that, that Canada is actually experiencing a surge of refugee claimants right now in relation to what's going on in the world. Indeed, 
the vast majority of people who are fleeing persecution right now come from just three countries. And they're all countries that have been repeatedly in the news over the last few years. It's Syria, it's Ukraine, and it's Afghanistan, right? Those are the top three sources of asylum seekers right now. And we can throw Sudan into the mix and understand that um, we're dealing with an unprecedented crisis right now. And one that shows no signs of abating anytime soon. But having said that, it's important to realize that Canada shares only a tiny fraction of responsibility for this population. Indeed, some 76% of asylum seekers remain in so-called transit countries or neighboring countries, generally low to middle income countries, very far from Canada. So the biggest host countries for, for asylum seekers right now are Turkey, Iran, Colombia, Germany, and Pakistan. Canada, by virtue of its geography, is a hard place to reach. So we're not getting millions of people at our doorstep. We're getting thousands. And in terms of Toronto's share, we're getting hundreds. And the problem is that it's in numbers that are greater than the shelter system that has traditionally served this population can absorb. But this should have been planned for, right? It's not as though these numbers surged all of a sudden, unexpectedly in June. The numbers have been rising steadily for the past couple of years, and certainly in the last year. The budget, as accounted for at the municipal level, was simply not enough to serve the needs. And what should have happened was emergency resolutions and emergency measures taken to absorb the population of asylum seekers that had arrived in Toronto. That didn't happen. In fact, the exact opposite happened. The city of Toronto shut its doors in June, threw up its hands and said, it's not our problem. And I think, frankly, that's unconscionable. I'm reasonably optimistic that with a new mayor at the helm, there will be a solution that involves the city taking more proactive measures. So before what we're seeing right now, Sherry, what has been the process for people seeking asylum here in Canada? So depending on where they arrive, right, because every, every port of entry has its own constellation of services. But if we're talking about things here in Ontario, typically Toronto would be the main gateway where asylum seekers would land, either because they arrived by air in the first place through Pearson, or they arrived uh, via a land crossing and found their way to Toronto. But either way, they would be directed to the shelter reception office on Peter Street, where they would be referred to appropriate short-term housing. And that's indeed where people have been going. But unlike in the past, where people would then be referred to temporary housing, because our shelter system is strained to the max, they're no longer getting referrals and they've been camped out literally sleeping on the sidewalk in front of that office. You said earlier that the surging number of refugees and asylum seekers around the world is really coming as no surprise. So why did it seem to catch governments here in Canada by surprise? Well, that's a good question. I think it's a lack of planning. And I, I think the same could be said in previous years 
in relation to how various levels of government responded to rising numbers. For example, when President Trump took office in the United States, uh, there was a surge in the numbers of border crossings into Canada at the time as people were fleeing President Trump's executive orders that had particularly <laughs> deleterious impact on, on people seeking asylum and wanting to have their claims adjudicated in the United States. So we saw a rise in numbers. It was entirely predictable. And yet the government was caught short without adequate numbers of decision makers at the Refugee Protection Division. And it took quite some time to catch up with the appointments. I mean, these are planning processes. And it's important that every level of government, including decision-making structures, have an eye on what's going on internationally, have an eye on the numbers reaching Canada, and make sure that adequate provisions have been made. And whether we're talking about shelter spaces on arrival or we're talking about adjudicators to actually help process asylum claims, it's it's very much the same kind of issue. I think a lot of us are thinking right now about what it must be like for these asylum seekers, for these refugees landing here in Canada and finding that this is waiting for them. I wonder what you've been hearing from people who are seeking asylum here making their way to Canada, only to find out that they have nowhere to go. People are shocked, as they should be. I think it's important to recognize uh, that at least here in Toronto, a coalition of of Black-led community organizations have uh, banded together and actually just last night uh, stepped in to offer short-term emergency shelter in two local churches. And busloads of people were transported last night to a warm bed and a, and a warm shower. But that's community groups stepping up. And, and certainly, as has been reported, <laughs> they don't have the, the resources or the capacity to be playing this role over the medium to long-term. They need governments to step in, and specifically the city. It's simply not acceptable for the city to be shutting its doors. The city has the capacity to open up emergency beds. We've done it in the past when there have been housing crises. Now is the time to act and certainly find the money. And it's up to absolutely the federal government to step in with more funding. Um, But that's not an excuse uh, to do nothing or to allow people to sleep on the streets in the meantime. We're also seeing criticism about the way these particular asylum seekers and refugees are being treated. Most of them are from African countries. How does that play a role? Well, I think it's a very important dimension of the current problem, and I'm very glad you raised it. So let's consider a stark counterpoint. The numbers of refugees fleeing from Ukraine over the last two years since the conflict erupted has been unprecedented. And Canada responded with an unprecedented policy response, namely an emergency program that created a virtual air bridge from Ukraine to Canada for thousands of people to come to Canada temporarily with their family members. And not only that, we've announced this temporary air bridge becoming permanent with the opportunity for any of the people who arrived on a temporary basis to actually regularize their status and become permanent residents. This was done very swiftly in a very coordinated way with all levels of government and included emergency support for shelter, food, and 
basic allowances until people could get on their feet. All of that was coordinated very swiftly and very effectively. And indeed, I hold it up as a positive example of what happens when governments work well together. Contrast that with the response to the asylum seekers that we're seeing right now in Toronto, who are primarily Black Africans. And what has been the response? All three levels of government have been willing to sit on their hands and point the finger to each other and have allowed people to sleep on the street. The stark difference in treatment is just confounding, uh, frankly, and really reinforces the extent to which systemic racism continues to inform policy responses at all levels of government. There's no other way to read it. And while it may not have been the intention of Deputy Mayor McKelvey when the doors were shut in June, that has been the effect. And, and I think it's absolutely the case that there must be accountability for this. It's shameful. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. With your work on the board of the FCJ Refugee Center, what are the immediate needs people have when they come here? Well, the very uh, most immediate need is, is a roof over their head and food on their dinner plate. That is for sure on everyone's minds. Beyond that, refugee families arriving with young children need support for their children, need help getting them into school or childcare centers. And certainly medical needs are often high on the list, particularly for asylum seekers who've arrived via perilous journeys, often with medical needs not met. Many asylum seekers are experiencing trauma and require counseling and supports to address that. So there's a, really a constellation of fairly critical needs that need to be met right off the mark. And more medium term, it's uh, support to access the labor market, right? And to put to use the skills and training that they've brought with them. And that's something that you know Canada has historically done quite well with in terms of providing a constellation of settlement supports. But it's often been uneven in relation to the extent to which asylum seekers can access those supports. So we've tended to focus those uh, services on people who've arrived as economic immigrants and restricted access to some of the training programs, for example, for asylum seekers with the idea that until they actually have their status resolved, you know, they shouldn't be included in some of these other programs. And of course, the problem with that is it's meanwhile sometimes wasting months and years of people's lives before they actually get the needed supports to get effectively their careers relaunched. So we are seeing this patchwork of help, you know, these community leaders coming out, providing pizza dinners, some breakfast for people in need. It can't be up to them to figure this out. So whose obligation is it to provide this supportive housing? 
Well, the money needs to come from the federal government, right? Um, absolutely, uh, the funding level responsibility is federal, but the provision of services happens on the ground at the city level, at the municipal level. And what I'm suggesting is the onus is on the city to coordinate with both the province and the federal government and get the funding they need. But it's not acceptable to simply say, well, we don't have the money, so we're closing our doors. What they need to do is provide the shelter and get the money, right? You, you can't play with people's lives as pawns in the meantime. You can't suggest that asylum seekers who fled persecution in their home country should be sleeping on our sidewalks. That's just not an acceptable policy response. Especially I'm thinking too, you're saying these aren't overwhelming numbers. It's not thousands of people that we're getting here. Why can't we just handle hundreds? Indeed, that's exactly the question. I mean, certainly overall numbers of refugee claimants in Canada have been rising steadily over the last couple of years. We can see that. We can see that, for example, the numbers of claims initiated at the Immigration and Refugee Board really started to rise in 2017. And typically, you know, these surges in Canada happen in correlation with what's going on in the world, but often not necessarily immediately. So if we look at the numbers internationally, they started surging in 2012. And it actually took several years before Canada started to see the pressure of, of global migration on its own doorstep. But it's really to point out that these numbers have been rising here in Canada for at least several years. And what we're, we're talking about is still relatively small contained numbers in relation to the size and scale of our country. So it makes it all the more shocking that we have people sleeping on the sidewalk on Peter Street. Something else I'm thinking about is we're speaking during a time of a global heat wave, you know, especially in uh, countries that don't normally experience hot, hot conditions. You know, this brings up the idea of climate refugees. We're going to see more movement going forward. How can Canada be better prepared to accept people in need going forward? You're right to point to climate migration. Um, I will say, though, that... Um, we're not going to be on the front end of that crisis just because of geography. And also because the Canadian government just took the step of extending the Canada-US Safe Third Country Agreement across the entire shared border between our two countries, which means that with limited exceptions, any asylum seeker arriving in the United States first will be required to initiate their asylum claim there and won't be permitted to come into Canada. So we're insulated by our geography, and we're also unfortunately insulated by the extension of this new protocol just this last spring, which will make it virtually impossible for the majority of asylum seekers to actually enter Canada in the first place. So in some ways, we're a little bit insulated from the immediate migration pressures. The places in the world where refugees are fleeing because their land is disappearing under the sea, for example, are quite far away from Canada at this time. You know, certainly 50 years from now, another generation from now, I think the situation will look very different. And I think all the countries in the world are going to have to coordinate very closely 
to manage what is likely to be a surging crisis. But I don't think it's on our doorstep quite yet. Okay, so while we may be isolated from the climate refugee crisis, we're not isolated from an affordability crisis. And that's what so many Canadians are experiencing right now. Absolutely. And I'm, so I'm thinking of people who might be listening who think, hey, I can't afford my rent. I can't afford my mortgage, you know, and then we're going to help these people who are new to Canada that aren't able to get their own housing. How does that make sense? Yes, well, I would start the same way I explain these things uh, when I'm actually teaching refugee law to my students with the fact that there's an international legal framework that imposes obligations on governments uh, in relation to asylum. And while we don't necessarily have to offer a permanent home to everyone who knocks on our door, We do have an obligation as a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention to facilitate the processing of asylum claims for people who arrive at our doorstep and to ensure that people are supported through that process. And that means ensuring people have access to having their basic needs met. And and typically, in the Canadian context, that has meant providing short-term shelter and uh, a pathway uh, to more long-term housing and the ability to work through providing work permits so that once people actually have the papers in hand, they can get work and they're not in the shelter system uh, in the medium to long-term. But certainly until all that paperwork is is completed, there's a need for short-term housing. And we have a legal obligation, I would argue, to provide it as we do have a responsibility with respect to our own citizens and residents in this country. You know, not far from from where I live, there's an encampment of people who are entirely unhoused and in dire need of social supports and not getting it. So it's a massive crisis in Canada right now that's touched many people's lives. But I would suggest that the way forward is not by playing off different segments of the population against each other, Governments have a responsibility to tend to the welfare of everyone physically present in this country, regardless of their legal status or the title of their their status. And outside of the legal obligation, what do refugees and asylum seekers bring to Canada? Because we do want to bring more people to our country. Indeed, Canada has set itself very ambitious immigration targets uh, for the coming years, the next three-year plan in particular out of a recognition that immigration is the fuel of Canada's economic engine and produces a net economic benefit. And refugees are part of that story. Although they arrive as refugees, they stay as immigrants, right? And um, over the medium to long term, contribute far more to Canada than they actually use in initial supports and services. But it's critical in terms of supporting their pathway to success that adequate supports are offered at the front end. That's the only way people can actually hope to establish themselves and settle long-term. So what I guess your question is raising is the inextricable link between arriving as a refugee and ultimately remaining as an immigrant and contributing to Canada. This is such a fluid situation right now. We're getting new updates constantly from the different levels of government, how they're now going to step up because People across Canada know the term Peter Street now. 
I'm wondering what your reaction is to some of this last-minute funding announcements. We just heard from the federal government. They're stepping up with more than $200 million, about half of that going to Toronto. Well, that's welcome news. Um, and, and I would say, you know, it's unfortunate that it took the amount of media attention and community organizing that it did in order for this announcement to be made. But better late than never. It's very welcome news. So what do we do going forward? How can this be a more stable situation? How can the different levels of government not be caught off guard by people who are just looking for a safer place to be? Well, I think it's critical that at the municipal level, um, the appropriate city staff are engaged in conversations with their counterparts provincially and federally, and that there's a table for everyone to meet at. And, you know, my understanding is that table... (laughs) has likely existed in the past. I can't really account for what fell apart this past spring. I'm not sufficiently insider to the municipal politics and municipal landscape to be able to offer an opinion on that, but I can say it obviously broke down somewhere. And the way forward is to open those lines of communication and to ensure the federal government, which does have its eye on international numbers and arrivals at a national level, is communicating with both provincial and municipal counterparts to ensure that the adequate funding levels needed in the right places are are, are made available. Thank you so much for joining us, Sherry. It was my pleasure, Melissa. Thank you. Sherry Aiken is an associate professor specializing in immigration and refugee law at Queen's University Faculty of Law. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Want to weigh in? Share your feedback at the Big Story FPN on Twitter. Email hello at the Big Story Podcast.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 416 935 5935. The Big Story is available wherever you get your podcasts and on a smart speaker by asking it to play the Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Duggan in for Jordan. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.